This is an addendum episode for the men behind the curtain video I put out around a week ago. In the future, these will be Patreon exclusives, but as it's my first one, I'm going to give it out for free. The purpose of these addendum episodes is to offer a second look at some things I may have missed that came to my attention post-production, or to expand on some figures, ideas, or movements that didn't quite fit in with the episode's thematics or wider ideas. Or even, as is the case with this episode, there have been some recent developments in the news that I believe need to be mentioned or clarified post-production. This episode ticks all three of these boxes. In this addendum episode to Men Behind the Curtain, I'll be looking at Alexei Novani, his legacy and the recent military escalation on the border of Ukraine and Russia. First up, I'll be looking at Navalny, his legacy and what he has done for the citizens of Russia and of the world. For those of you that don't know, Navalny came to international prominence during 2018 when he became the front-running opposition leader against Putin with his party, Russia of the Future, but he was subsequently banned from running by the Russian Central Electoral Commission. He is now currently in prison serving two and a half years in Vladimir Oblast where he accuses the Russian police of torturing him whilst incarcerated. Whilst I knew of Navalny before the production of Men Behind the Curtain, I couldn't quite find the angle as to how to fit him into the documentary. My documentary was retrospective and looked at various political intellectuals through a historic lens. Navalny, whilst a prominent outsider in contemporary Russian society, I believe has a long future and legacy ahead of him. An educated lawyer, he has been an active political figure in Russia for around two decades. He is not a stagnant figure in history influencing Putin. He is a challenge to the regime now and for the foreseeable future. So I'll look at his influence and his legacy, not just in Russia, but the world over in this addendum episode. First, some background on him. He is the only figure I am discussing that isn't of complete Russian descent. He is Ukrainian-Russian and is proficient in Ukrainian having spent many summers there as a child with his grandma. As I mentioned in the documentary, and as well as the recent news developments, Ukraine is a point of constant fixation by Russian intellectuals and politicians, who see it unequivocally as part of Russia. Navalny was political almost from the outset, and has been a fierce critic of the Russian establishment from the year 2000 onwards. He has allied himself amongst radicals both on the nationalist anti-immigrant right and the communist left. Similarly to Limonov, he seems to be a pan-political dissident. Navalny is an anti-corruption lawyer, and if there was one idea that his political views coalesce around, it is the freedom of information for the purpose of expelling corrupt leaders. He is the chairman and founder of the FBK an anti-corruption foundation which seeks to investigate and expose high-level corruption in the Russian establishment. He has always been fighting the system. He has been part of or been allied with numerous opposition parties in Russia. His first biggest step as a prominent opposition leader was in the mayoral elections of Moscow in 2013, where he was one of six candidates vying for the position of mayor of Moscow. He received enough signatures to be a registered candidate and then boom, was arrested on money embezzlement and fraud charges. He was forced to exit the mayoral race, but then was re-entered into it to prove the leg legitimacy of the mayoral elections. But the damage had been done. He had lost the momentum needed for his campaign to be a success. 
This would be one of many pushbacks against Navalny from the Russian establishment. Navalny is unique in that he utilized the power of the online medium to spread his message running a blog, which was both in Russian and in English. In his blog, he details a lot of the corruption and sleaze that happened at the heart of the Kremlin. His command of English is excellent, and this has helped him garner wider support globally, which helps him earn his title as the most prominent and important opposition leader to Putin in the 21st century. Additionally, his views on e-democracy, that is, democracy of the internet, often referred to as digital democracy, has been a central idea that underpins his political leanings. Navalny believes the freedom to disseminate information as a crucial bedrock for democratic countries. Navalny came to real prominence as a viable contender against Putin in his organization of anti-corruption marches that he organized in multiple cities across Russia and in cities around the world. These marches were attended by millions, which obviously evoked a lot of fear and trepidation of the Russian establishment. Navalny has been physically attacked multiple times by people he claims were working with the Kremlin. He was sprayed in the face in 2017 with a green dye that resulted in damage to 80% of sight in his eye. And more recently, he was poisoned by Novichok, a notorious deadly nerve agent on a plane from Siberia, which had to do an emergency landing resulting in him almost dying. All these attacks have been blamed categorically on the Russian elites and establishment. So why do they fear him so much? Well, for one, he has a huge following, both internationally and domestically. He is seen as a serious contender to Putin, who serves the interest of the oligarchical elite. He's democratic and wants full transparency for the government and its dealings. And there is his film, Putin's Palace, viewed by millions, this film is pivotal in showing the extent of corruption and sleaze within the Russian establishment. Putin's palace shows the 1.35 billion, yes billion dollars, estate allegedly owned by Putin. Navalny states that the funds used to build the palace were fraudulently acquired and the investigation into the construction of the palace allegedly involves Putin's inner circle's plot to hide billions of dollars in order to build the estate. The estate contains a no-fly zone, border control, its own church, its own port, and its own security system. It is what Navalny describes as a state within the state of Russia. Putin, of course, denies this is his estate and instead insists the owner of the estate is that of the oligarch Arkady Rottenberg, which Navalny obviously disputes. What Navalny is to the Russian state is a nuisance. He is tenacious in his investigations and pursuits of inquiry, and he symbolizes a huge headache to the financial elites, as he seeks to expose the corruption of oligarchs, prime ministers, politicians, and even President Putin himself. He shows how they are all enmeshed in various criminal dealings. Essentially, they are dealing with vast fortunes of illegally acquired wealth in the hundreds of billions often acquired illegally through insider trading, laundering, embezzlement, and fraud, whilst the poorest of Russians are left with nothing at the bottom of society. Navalny puts forth a mirror to the web of deceit and corruption at the heart of Russian politics. He is a constant reminder of the gangster-like rule of the current Russian regime. He pisses them off because he is a voice that won't be silenced. He is formidable in his exposés of Russian corruption. He brought many things to the attention of the Russian and international community, 
Putin's palace, his video on YouTube, received millions of views in a day. His critique of constitutional reform cuts out all of the superfluous language and political speech to present the idea forthright that the changes to the constitution mean Putin can be president for life. He utilizes the new age of information to challenge the current regime. He can disseminate and mobilize mass opposition protests against the government with the drop of a hat. And the Russian oligarchs and political elites hate him for it. After being almost killed multiple times, he is still standing, though he is currently serving a two and a half year sentence in prison, with claims he is being tortured regularly on charges he deems to be bogus. If he survives prison, he will continually represent a challenge to the Russian elite. The retaliation from the Russian elite has so far been brutal. Aside from the obvious attempts at assassination, one thing you often hear is a perpetuated character assassination, that he is a Western plant, or even a Ukrainian one, or simply a rogue citizen hell-bent on the destabilization of the Russian state. Though through my research, I haven't found much evidence of any of this. Aside from some tabloid sensationalism, it is obvious his views align more with Western democracies, yes, but he has been fighting for these viewpoints consistently for decades. But what is evident from the character assassinations is they do fear him. He does, in my humble opinion, symbolize a new hope for Russia. Ultimately, he wants reform, an end to corruption, transparency in government, open and fair elections and the dissemination of information for the empowerment of the citizens of Russia. He wants democracy, liberty and freedom, which critics like Dugin, Surkov and the deep state of Russia see as trivial Western formalities, bullshit and not applicable to Russia. What Navalny says is yes they are, they belong to all who want to fight for it. But what has been interesting is there have been wider ramifications from his imprisonment, which have shined a light on Western hypocrisy. I'll give you some examples. Shortly after he was poisoned, Ted Cruz tweeted, The poisoning of Alexei Navalny serves as a stark reminder of the threats posed by Russia. Interesting. But what is fascinating is where Cruz stands on democratic institutions. Cruz still refuses to acknowledge the democratic process in the election of Biden, insisting there was electoral fraud, with zero evidence to support his claim. Cruz is a prominent figure that undermines the democratic process in America. How can he talk about the threats of Russia? If I were American, I would be way more fearful of Cruz's rhetoric than I would be of Russia. Another example is my Prime Minister, Boris Johnson who called for Navani's immediate release. Yet, whilst writing that, Johnson had Julian Assange locked up in Belmarsh, a maximum security prison in the UK, waiting to be extradited to America to serve a lengthy prison sentence for the crime of disseminating information, something Navani would have been supportive of. Another point of hypocrisy here is the fact Edward Snowden is watching the saga of Navani unfold whilst languishing in Moscow, unable to go home for the crime that Navani also committed. Snowden and Navani both shared information against their respective states. They were both punished harshly for it, for the freedom of information at all costs. Russia and America aren't so different here. What Navani has helped propagate is the importance of sharing information and empowering the citizens of democracy through knowledge and awareness. 
both at home in Russia and abroad. He has shown there is no moral high ground anymore for the West. The West is just as hypocritical as Russia when they claim to be free and open democratically. Navalny has exposed not just Russian compliance with crooks and criminals, but a global oligarchy actively working together to consolidate their power and use it against citizens for their own financial and personal gain. Exposés like the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, are quickly scrubbed from the headlines and the journalists who expose them are killed. The world over, dirty money is used to swamp our political systems, obfuscate our judicial proceedings and corrupt our politicians that are meant to serve us. Insider trading, embezzlement, offshore tax havens, spying and wiretaps by security services, tax cuts for corporations, privatization, corruption, and a steady increase in billionaires the world over have all become normalized news headlines to us all. Money and finance have become weaponized against people like you. And people like Novani, who expose just a fraction of the wealth that is being siphoned off from crooks and into the pockets of oligarchs and politicians, are imprisoned for showing us a glimpse of the worldwide network of the financial elite and how they are fucking us. Money has come to rule us all. Yes, Russia has problems with corruption, but so does every single state in the world. China, the UK, Russia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Brazil, the US, all united in financial corruption and greed. So this is where we should pay thanks to Navalny. He has put the mirror up against corruption. Another renegade and revolutionary for the people. Along with Snowden, Assange and Chelsea Manning, they are all disseminating information for us, the citizens of the world offering us a glimpse into the deep state corruption that is rife the world over. Navani is still in prison, yes, but his message and ideas live on. All I can say is his story is not finished yet. There has also been some positive and not so positive developments. One positive development is that Putin has promised French President Macron that he promises to withdraw military troops after training in Belarus which would put them at a disadvantage if they were to invade. A negative development, however, is the news that troops from the Far Eastern military bases in Russia, as far away as North Korea, are also on the border of Ukraine. They wouldn't necessarily be there if an invasion wasn't imminent. So-called invasionologists like Shashank Joshi, defense editor of The Economist, have predicted an invasion likely at around the 20th of February, with the sole objective being for regime change in Ukraine, which is both atavistic and shocking as we haven't heard news of this by a superpower since the 2003 Gulf War in Iraq. Anyway, in the final part of this addendum, I want to briefly look at the recent military buildup on the border of Ukraine and Russia. Whilst writing the Men Behind the Curtain episode, there weren't many ongoing developments in the region, but post-production, a lot has been going on. Which reminds me of the Lenin quote, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. So I just want to briefly offer my two cents on the situation as it is unfolding. For full transparency, this is being written in February 2022, so a lot could develop and change in the coming weeks. Obviously, even now, there are many developments. There's been a steady escalation in the region, with a buildup of Russian armed forces along the border. 
The UK has also sent over military support and arms to the Ukrainians. There are a few angles to this whole debacle which I will outline briefly. Again, to clarify, these are my opinions only at the time of writing, which is February 2022. So here are the different angles of the situation as it is. First, there is the angle that Putin is right to be concerned. Ukraine joining NATO would be a threat in the region for Putin, as this would put NATO and its military might right on the border of Russia. Second is the fact that Putin sees Ukraine as part of Russia, and them joining NATO is akin to a Western invasion into Ukraine, for which he cannot tolerate. Kiev city was a capital city of Russia long before Moscow was, so there is still ensuing debate within the Russian establishment and academia about what Ukraine is to them. I don't necessarily agree with this standpoint as borders are always in flux, but it is still a viewpoint one must be made aware of. Thirdly is the idea that Ukraine symbolizes a flashpoint for the Third World War. If Putin invades and the West retaliates, all hell could break loose. There could be a huge swing in power dynamics in the coming decades and millions of lives could be lost. I don't think either side wants this to happen. Fourth is the fact that Ukraine, in my opinion, has a right to self-determination. They are a sovereign state with a democratically elected leader and therefore have the right to determine their own course of action for the foreseeable future. This is complicated, of course, as certain parts of Ukraine ally themselves and identify most with the Russians, whereas other regions don't. They see themselves as distinguishably Ukrainian and want to be part of NATO and favor closer ties with Europe and the West. The wider Ukrainian conflict and internal politics of the region are very complex and ever-changing, so to go into even greater detail will require an episode of itself and some time to wait to see how it all plays out. But I will recommend some good documentaries, podcasts and videos in my show notes on my website that you can check out after the show. As of writing, there has yet to be an invasion. The West has denied they would intervene if they were to invade, but NATO are supplying arms and military advisors to the Ukrainians. NATO, along with the whole world, are watching the situation carefully. I just wanted to offer my two cents post-production and to clarify, this is time-sensitive. All of what I just said about Ukraine is likely to change, which is the challenge when making videos about what-ifs for the future. So what do you think will happen in the region? Let me know in the comments below. Thank you for watching this addendum video. Going forward, these addendum videos where I will cover post-production thoughts or go more in-depth on ideas people I missed in the main episodes will be Patreon exclusives. Please consider supporting my show on Patreon at patreon.com slash haikoop. And also give me a follow on Twitter for all updates about videos, podcasts, posts on my website, etc. Thanks again for watching. Your support means the world to me. See you all soon.